So, hi, Natalie. How goes it on the other side of the Atlantic? Uh, it's fine here in the Netherlands. It's much colder and rainier than we would have liked for the end of May, but we're surviving. It's all good. Did you get a little burst of warmth in April? We had three days where everybody was in shorts thinking that summer had arrived, but we got tricked again. Now we're back <gasps> with winter coats. <laughs> Only three days. Oh, that's bad. You're miserable. <laughs> you know, so apparently, well, you're in the Netherlands. You're pretty sort of close-ish to the UK. Um, but I think you it's not all of Europe that's getting this dank, dark spring. Did you say your no. dad's place in Spain is like really nice? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm half I'm half English from London and half Spanish from Barcelona. So I'm very fortunate to still have my dad and um, our original Spanish home in Spain. And yeah, they're having absolutely beautiful, glorious summer weather. So it makes it even harder to be stuck here. We're, we're, we're only in the Netherlands because of my husband's work and the kids schooling and stuff. So uh, we move around a lot, so uh, otherwise we'd choose a much warmer climate. <laughs> right, and you, you did live in Spain for a while, moved up to the yeah. Netherlands for the job, yeah? Yeah, that's right. So um, we've lived in four countries, actually. My husband and I, we were a year in Australia, uh, seven years in Spain, five years in the UK together. This is as a married couple. And now we've been four and a half years in the Netherlands. So we get about. Yeah, and Australia. Where in Australia? Oh, well, I was backpacking. Um, I had a big drama, big boyfriend breakup, left everything, told my mom I'd be gone for a couple of months and then disappeared for 14 months on my own around the world. <laughs> I just went and just traveled around Australia on my own and uh, nine months in met my uh, now husband and we carried on. So we lived together in Sydney for a while, um, worked there. And, so he's uh, Australian. No, he's not. He's from the UK. He's from an hour and a half away. <laughs> Met him on a bus. I was like, oh, it's another, it's another British lad. Hello. <laughs> oh, that's so hilarious. Yeah, yeah, he's not Australian. My mom was terrified I'd meet an Australian and like, you know, move to the other side of the world. So she was very happy I came back with, a, with an English guy. Oh, that's actually a fair point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, right. Oh, my goodness. Travel meeting people who live far away and all the interesting adventures that creates. That's super cool. Well, she did the same thing. She went on holiday and met my father. He didn't speak English. She didn't speak Spanish. She packed her bags and moved in with him two weeks later and, uh, and moved to Barcelona for nine years. So she couldn't blame me for traveling. Followed her footsteps. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. That's a super cool story. And your kids are going to grow up with a great story of how you and your dad or their dad met. Yeah, well, they speak four languages. Well, my eldest is 12 and she's learning her fourth language at the moment. It's quite common in the Netherlands to speak, you know, to be multilingual. So she speaks English and Spanish at home. She speaks Dutch because we live in the Netherlands. She's learning it. She goes to an English school and she's learning French. As part of her study. So uh, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I, yeah it, you know, my, it's, it's one of the saddest things, I think, in a way about American culture is the perception that learning multiple languages is somehow um it's really interesting. It's either perceived as like you're being put upon or you're being asked to do something that's too much. So it's sort of like a bit of a pushback American cultural attitude towards it. And then what's really sad is you have people who immigrate here. And because of that, they are convinced that if their children are burdened with the challenges of having a different language at home and learning English in the schools, that that's going to harm their children. And so they'll stop speaking their own language at home and just focus mm. on English only for the kids. It's it's really, and I'm always like, you can do three languages. It's not a problem. 
I think it's yeah I, I think it's very much it's the same in the UK because everybody speaks English so we just get lazy and a bit kind of ignorant and expect the whole world to accommodate us and I just think it's a matter of respect if you're going to live I mean you know we're immigrants I don't I don't want to you know, expat is such a kind of a uh, privileged way of looking at it. We're no right. different for immigrants and um, I'm proud of it, you know, and and Jackie, who I write with is the same. She's lived literally got all around the world and she's come away speaking four or five languages. So um, I think it's, it's an honor to be able to uh, get a glimpse of someone's culture and speak their language. It's just a matter of respect, isn't it? But each to their own. So folks, this is Natalie from the Netherlands and I'm gonna let her introduce herself really quick, go. Thanks so much. My name's Natalie and I write as MJ Simmons. Um, I specifically write fantasy, paranormal romance and speculative fiction for adults and manga. And uh, something I'm really proud about is the diversification of, of the creativity that I like to indulge myself in. So not only do I write, but I also illustrate and I teach um, storytelling for business, so from a corporate level, uh, as well as uh, creative storytelling for the likes of uh, the University of The Hague here in the Netherlands. I also teach for Raindance uh, Film MA students. Um, so I'm really, really proud that I've got to kind of combine my background in sales, marketing and PR, which is where I originally uh, started off with my writing and my art. And now I get to dabble in all my favorite things but mainly what I uh, love the most is writing about complex, strong women, uh, dark, fantastical worlds, magic, and um, a lot of adventure. Maybe oh. what I do. Yes, and I've been reading over the past couple of days when I've gotten a chance, I've been sitting around reading um, one of the books that you sent to me in the email, and it's true. That's exactly what's going on. I've got these this really cool female character, and she's... That's right, yeah. Yeah, she's... I mean, yeah. I write as Kate, I think I should have mentioned actually, I mean, I, I write as NJ Simmons, but um, as of uh, October last year, I also write with uh, amazing author Jacqueline Sylvester and together our pen name is Cadis Knight, which is a much more kind of fun, uh, witty, paranormal romance, a little bit sexy uh, 18 plus series that we've written, which has just completely opened uh, my mind to a whole new genre and it's just been the most fun and really really got us through lockdown <laughs> getting to write this whole adventure together but that's not the vampires of moscow series yeah yeah that's the series that i write that i co-write yeah so as nj simmons i write a fantasy trilogy uh that's the path keeper son of secrets and children of shadows that's out on uh, july 8th and that book's all set in London and Spain, so you know, write what you know. And uh, and that's angels and past lives, and it's contemporary, but it's uh, a, a world within our own. And then what I write with Jackie as Cadis Knight is again, actually, it's paranormal world within our own. It's still contemporary, but it's much more fun. Uh, there, you know, it's, it's more witches and vampires and werewolves, and each book's set in a different European city. So it's a bit of a crossover, but different style. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk actually. Okay. So I've got writers and readers out there and then we've got people who would define themselves in another way. We got everyone out there listening. And but from the writer's perspective sort of specifically, imagine, you know, when you're thinking about genres, especially if you're um querying agents or you're just trying to figure out this new story you're working on, you know, what genres are going to fit into. Um I've had people suggest to me that 
a book that does what Vampires of Moscow does, which does actually, which is similar actually to what Twilight does, and a number of other stories where they're based in the current moment. It's the real world. You know, you've got Seattle, you've got Moscow, whatever, you've got New York, but there's this paranormal element. I've had a lot of people say that that's speculative. And you mentioned it being contemporary. So I'm curious what you feel about the difference between maybe contemporary and speculative and and how someone who's trying to place their book that has supernatural stuff in the real world happening, how can they determine where to place it? What are your thoughts on that? That's a really good uh, observation, actually, because I was talking about it with um, another friend of mine last night. My new book is going to be speculative fiction. And the difference between fantasy, speculative and paranormal is that uh, speculative is much more um, open to interpretation. So if you're reading a book and it's speculative, it's still magical, but some of it could be interpreted as metaphorical, allegorical. Um, so for instance, I'm reading um, Alex D. Harrow's amazing uh, The 10,000 Doors of January, and that's speculative fiction. I mean, you, yes, there's magical doors you step inside, but you could also say, well, actually, maybe she isn't seeing these doors. Maybe it's metaphorical. Maybe it sounds, whereas, you know, if you're writing fantasy, especially if it's high fantasy, whether it's contemporary or not, if there's literal real dragons or real vampires, mm-hmm. then that's not really speculative because you're not speculating <laughs> on anything. You're literally putting this fantasy world and combining it with our own so um i think really you know paranormal is very specifically the monsters you know right so uh elves and and fairies and vampires and that kind of uh mythological stuff is is much more kind of paranormal uh whereas fantasy it, it, it encompasses all of it i mean there may be readers <laughs> sorry readers there right. may be listeners thinking nope she's got it all wrong but that's how i, I define the truth <laughs> because i do touch upon all of them and i'm always like hmm am i it's all fantasy because it's all made up it's all fantasy because i'm not talking about life as we actually experience it right. but within that some is speculative some is paranormal with the Bloodweb Chronicles, which we write collectively as Cadis Knight, right. she's a, a verity witch, she's a reporter, um, and her Paranormal Chronicles newspaper that she writes for is in a paranormal corner of our dark web, uh, the dark web that literally exists in our world. Right. We, we created a world where within that, there's a whole paranormal community living amongst us that we're not aware of. Um, and that's just been really, really great fun because, you know, we've taken real uh, buildings, for instance, you know, buildings uh, by um, you know famous architects uh, right. in um, like La Sagrada Familia or you know Gaudi's Park in Barcelona, and we've twisted it and turned it into something else. So we like writing about places where where we we're from or where we've lived, uh, where yes. our family's from, and then just twisting it up, and so people walk past and say, "Oh, wait a minute!" In that book, a bit, a bit like Dan Brown does, you know. Right, right. So you mentioned earlier you're really excited about um, Children of Shadows coming out. Now, Children of Shadows is the third book of which series? Uh, it's called The Indigo Chronicles. It's the Path Keeper, Son of Secrets, and Children of Shadows. And it's it was my debut trilogy. So the first book, uh, it's had a, a real journey, those three books. It first came out with a UK publisher in 2017. Um, that imprint uh, was um, terminated, so I mm. lost the publishers. I thought nobody was ever going to find out what happened next. You know, it took me another year to find another publisher, mm-hmm. which was BHC Press in the states. They took it on. They republished the first book in 2019, 
and since then you know I've, I've had a book a year come out and it's just there's been a real journey because basically I've been nine years working on this world so it's right. just going to be a, an end frame for me and I'm, I'm actually looking forward to drawing a line under it but at the same time I'm it's a bit like seeing your children go off to college You're like okay yeah happy to say goodbye uh, <laughs> but that's good <laughs> I know the bittersweet the bittersweet mm. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I'm very excited because it's a, it's, a, it's a chunky book, the third one, really. It's 148,000 words, which is Ooh. way more than most of, yeah. And, and you I, didn't want to make it into two books. No, I always, I knew from the first book I ever wrote, you know, back in 2012, that I was going to write a trilogy. So I knew exactly what was going to happen in every book. Right. I just forgot until editing stage how bloody big it was. They <laughs> 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 sent it back with my line edits. I was like, wow, okay, I forgot I'd written so much. Well, all you have to do is look at Harry Potter. You know, it's like little yeah. book, little, little, little book, sort of medium book, a little bit bigger. Boom, boom, boom. I know. <laughs> I, used to read them out to my... <laughs> I used to read them to my children every night and we got to the fifth book. I was like, you know what, girls, you're old enough to read on your own now. Because <laughs> I was like, whoa, how big are these books going to get? <laughs> and my voice is going to die if I have to actually read all this. Yeah. I actually have two questions. Well, a comment and a question. So it's interesting what you said about the real world places. Um, I've been working on my novel series, which I've known since the beginning would be a four book series. Something was slowing me down and I figured out it was that I hadn't actually invested enough in my super duper big bad guy. And my my book goes all over the world. So my book um, starts in Europe and then it goes to America and then it goes to Europe and then it goes to um, Asia and it's all over the place. I had my mom that wanted to get together with me for the first time ever. We were going to actually go and be in Europe at the same time and travel together for a couple of weeks. I said, you know what? I'm going to go a couple of weeks earlier and I'm going to go figure out my super duper bad guy. Oh, what luxury. How wonderful. Oh, it was so brilliant. I went to, by myself, I went to seven different countries, you know, wow. busing it, walking, Airbnb, very much in a budget, but that's my thing anyways. It was like, I have this, because it's a thousand year old character. I'm not doing this for someone who's, you know, 19. This is a guy who's been around for a thousand years. And I went back to all these historical roots. And so my question for you is, where they have that little thing at the beginning where they say, um, no people or events or places in this story are meant to be construed as real. It's all fictional, blah, blah, blah. But that's obviously not true. And you actually have Avignon or Moscow or New York in your book. Um, I think it's a legal thing, March. I think it's just in case you happen to describe someone a bit similarly to your great aunt that hates you and they can't sue you. Yeah, but what about the cities? Like, you know, like yeah. uh, like Julie Murphy chose to make up Cloverdale, which is a fake town, does not exist. So that gave her the freedom to do anything she wanted because of the legal piece. But, yeah. you know, I've got Barcelona in my story. I can't make a fake Barcelona. So so do you have a I sense of the line? To cover yourself. Yeah, I think it's to cover yourself. Um, so, for instance, um, I've got a, a place that appears in book three, in, uh, yeah, in Children of Shadows which I call Redwood, and it's a borough of London. Well, obviously, I've, I've based it on a really rough part of London, actually, where my mother lives. Um, but I didn't want it set there because I didn't want to be disparaging and rude to the people that live there and, and give them a bad reputation because it's not all like that, and I needed this place to be really rough. Right. But I was inspired by it. Therefore, I just made up my own place. So, yes, I'd probably put at the beginning this isn't based on because I wouldn't want anyone to then mm. say, oh, look, you know, MJ Simmons is hates where we live or anything because mm -hmm. it's not it's not really done with any bad intent and I guess they just put that in to cover themselves right. but I mean 
absolutely my, my characters go back uh over 2000 years uh, mm. thousand years and his, his mother Lucy's even more I mean I, I rewrite the bible basically and I also have a fun scene in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, where he's looking at all the pictures and some of the uh, characters in these, you know, Renaissance paintings were based on him. Right. So there was a huge amount of, uh, I had so much fun, you know. Oh like, my yeah, gosh, you know, right. <laughs> Botticelli, Botticelli's uh, Primavera is actually going to be him. And the whole backstory as to what's oh. going on with one of the other characters and yeah, just make it all up. It, as I said, a bit like Dan Brown did, but for me, that was just most fun ever because you can yeah I know I, yes <laughs> and 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 okay it is the I don't know how history is viewed by people who grow up in European schools but in this country there's like sort of this um generally culturally understood joke that's unfortunately more real than we want it to be where a lot of people will just be like there's nothing worse than history class you know or I hate history because the way it's taught in this culture isn't it's like we want you to hate history so that you don't understand it so that you're clueless so here we're going to find the best way to make you hate it i don't know why i love history i was always the weird kid in class who actually was enjoying the history class you know i'm married to a guy who's got a degree in history so uh, we can't avoid it and you know when we moved here to the netherlands our house was built in 1532 so you you don't learn history in europe you literally live in it yeah you're walking through it we've got a bridge that was built in the 1200s like we have Mm -hmm. two churches here where we live one's called the the new church and it was built in the 1400s And the and the old church was built in like eleven oh nine or something. <laughs> so you know you can't. It's just and people well, still that, use everything. That could be a big part of it because around here, obviously, everything's new, new, new. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, it's just been interesting to me to always think: How is it that Hollywood? Because of course, you and I, and every a lot of people listening totally probably agree: history is actually phenomenally interesting. Which makes you scratch your head and think: How can they get it so badly in the schools? Because you know, we pay money, right? We pay money to buy tickets to go watch movies that are based upon history. And we love those movies. And so I just wish it was taught better in the schools. I think it could be so like everyone's favorite class. But well, I um, actually learn much more through fiction. So like reading for people like Philippa Gregory, who who wrote about Henry VIII and Tudor England and stuff, but she wrote it in such a way that it was so engaging and yep. it felt so real. that for me, I learned a lot more about that era than I did at school. Yes. Um, you know, Girl with the Pearl Earring is literally filmed in the town I live. Uh, they didn't have to kind of fake any of the buildings because they haven't changed. <laughs> literally haven't changed at all since Vermeer lived here. So, you know, you learn, you learn, I learn a lot more from watching movies or reading books about that time. But then if you're someone like me who then sets their books in the past, which I have had to do, mm-hmm. uh, the amount of research you have to do just to write one paragraph is phenomenal. Yes. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Right. So after that two weeks of traveling around and Debbie's like, it was get up in the morning, eat breakfast, go out, walk all day, take pictures, take notes, you know, ask questions. And this was all for one character. And by the end of it, I was so grounded and I'd figured out his, how do I explain this? Um, a bad character, you know this, but I'm not sure everyone listening thinks as deeply about how characters are written, but you know how a bad character really doesn't they're flat and they don't work if they're just bad for no reason they have to actually be motivated by something a lot of times a bad character right is that great awesome good person who got so bruised and battered by life that they turned bad out of like desperation or brokenness 
yeah, they've all got an origin story. And as yeah. somebody, and I, I don't know who it was, once famously said, no one thinks what they're doing is a bad idea. The most villainous people in history didn't think what they were doing was a bad idea. Right. So, you know, for, for a really deep character that, that's meant to be bad, you need to give them a motivation and a reason. And that's why I invented Lucy in uh, Son of Secrets and Children of Shadows, because she, you know, thunders onto the page in a very dramatic uh, confusing way and and I and I had readers saying I, I I don't know if I like her I love her but I wasn't sure if I was meant to like her or not and I said well I did that on purpose <laughs> you know I had a, a a character that was doing bad things for a good reason mm-hmm. and I wanted people to love her and to understand why she was doing it and then question their own morality because if you'd have been around for thousands of years and been put upon like she was and you had all the power in the world to do whatever you wanted would you be a good person you know? right so. And, and and how would you even define what being a good person was? Exactly. I mean, you know, that when we know this, you know, you watch a movie like um, there's that, oh, I think it's called 12 Monkeys. Mm. And it had Brad Pitt in it. And then also on that, oh, Bruce that, Willis? Is it Bruce yes, Willis? Bruce Willis. Right. And, and, you know, it's like you've got someone who's looking at the world and literally this, the bad guy in that situation, the scientist thinks humans are the plague we have to get rid of the humans and he's going to spread a disease that'll wipe us out i mean not because he just is a meanie but he's trying to save the planet i mean yeah i don't know it's it's more convenient for a writer to have a bad guy that's doing all these bad things because it you know motivates the uh the, the, the goody to um you know save the world but the bad guy has to have a good reason you have to go as deep as you possibly can with all of them every single character on your page has to have a reason for why they're doing what they're doing yeah if you don't have empathy for the bad guy at the end of the book and actually sort of feel super sad that that they turned out the way they were, sometimes you've really missed that beautiful opportunity to have all those feelings. Mm. Mind you, I didn't do that with Sebastian in my trilogy. He's just an absolute horrible person in every past <laughs> life. And the reason why he's terrible in the current story in The Path Keeper is you discover what his past life was and how history keeps repeating itself. <sighs> and, uh, and some people are just rotten. But, well, but see, uh, but see I'm, I'm like, I, you know, actually, I need to remember also, I have like this weirdly absurd high level of like empathy. So I could probably be sitting around and be like, but, but, and someone else would be like, no, he's just horrible. And I'd be like, but, but. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, he's just really got off on, on, on being an app. But the reason I still gave him a reason, it was right. the unfinished business from the past life that made him the way he was now. Right. So he still had a reason for it. It just wasn't an excusable one. So you and you've been, I've co-written before, a close friend and I spent 18 months co-writing um, a column for the local newspaper, one of the local papers in the island. And I, we found it to be, well, so many people just sort of gave me the, the hairy eyeball. They're like, really? Are you still talking to each other? <laughs> right? And we ended up actually having, you know, a couple of really intense conversations, but mostly it was it was so brilliant because we loved so much what the other person brought to it. Do you want to speak a little bit to um, maybe inspire people out there who are interested in co-writing but have been scared off by the idea that they'll lose their friendship or something? How has it been for you and your co-writer? Yeah, it's actually a question we're asked so often, Jackie and I, like, how do you not argue? Well, in fact, it's the reverse. Neither of us, are, we're very outspoken, we're very blunt. She comes from a Russian background. I come from a Spanish background we're not kind of tiptoeing around each other she'll say no I hate it or I rewrote your chapter it was awful and I'll say you know no we're not having that font for the front cover I don't like it and no one gets offended you have to 
put your ego out the door. And she did joke saying, you know, <laughs> we've been battered so much by the publishing or for the world of books and publishing that there's no, there's no ego left in us. <laughs> you know, like we're so used to, to the rejection that you get from this world that, that, that we're really open to criticism. So yes. that's, that's yeah. really important. You can't, you can't be precious. Yeah. You can't have an ego. You can't be like, no, but I love that idea. We discuss everything in advance to such a detailed level. We have secret Pinterest boards. We have Google Docs. We have a main world law document. Uh, we have to make sure that what's on in her head is the same as what's in my head. We're both very visual, so we use a lot of images all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk on the phone every single day, every day, mm -hmm. for hours, every day. We may as well be working in the same office, but she's in Berlin and I'm in the Netherlands, so mm -hmm. it's a bit unfortunate. Um, and to be honest, our friendships got stronger than ever. So it's it's uh, we've now written, we're writing our fourth one minute. I've got to count them. <laughs> One, two, three. Yeah, we've written three books and two novellas as part of this series. It's going to be six six books and three novellas by the end of it together. Mm -hmm. We've been doing this since she approached me with the idea in October two thousand nineteen. And we've uh, got a foreign rights agent. We've sold the series to Russia to their top, top publisher, traditional publisher. So that's something that's quite See, you're, you're quite productive. I mean, it's only been yeah. two years and you guys have, you, you, I bet some people would probably feel like, oh, if I had, if I had to work with someone else, it would slow me down. But it sounds like no. because you're not resisting and trying to fight for your babies and hold on to everything and that you're actually okay. wanting the effect of the other, that you guys move forward faster. Well, we work to our own strengths. So my background sales and marketing. She's got a master's degree in film. Um, she's done all this before. She's also been published in, in, in other countries before as well as self-publishing. And we had a business plan. We take this seriously. This isn't a hobby. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we set up our own limited company, you know, shared bank accounts. Uh, we've got the agent. We've, we're talking to various publishers abroad. We're talking to TV producers, actually. Uh, we're talking uh, with... We're looking at merchandise. We do our own covers. Uh, I designed and created our own website. The newsletters, the marketing, the advertising. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not messing. Right. <laughs> you know, this, this was this was approached as a business from day one. We always knew exactly what we were going to do. We even know what the spin-offs are going to be. So by 2023, we'll probably be announcing the, the second or 2022, the, ne the next series within this kind of world that we've written. Mm -hmm. and, taking it as far as we can we're also uh working on doing some online lessons talking about writing sex scenes together how to co-write and we work to our strengths not just with the writing side of things she's amazing at dialogue she's amazing at like deep characterization and backstory i'm much better at action scenes at pacing at descriptive language like you know, she'll leave big chunks saying, Natalie, describe a scene and I can't bother, you know. <laughs> and then she'll write the most amazing, really witty, funny dialogue. So anything that's memorable and funny, she's written. Anything that's kind of like grounds you into, into the setting, I've written. Um, and then we edit each other's work. So we we work on on our series like a good solid seven hours a day, every day. And we speak mm -hmm. every day. Because this isn't this isn't just something to pass the time. No, it's your job. It's, 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 yeah. you know, I mean, it'd be, it's so funny in a way. Um, there, you know, there's that interesting little fog that's that veil that separates readers from writers. And so there's always this sense of mystery. And, and you'll have the really, of usually the people who have made a career out of writing, they've written a lot of books consistently over time, pretty much 
all of them, the one thing they all share in common, no matter how different they are, is that you you sit down and you do it. You know, I mean, I think it's a Stephen King. Yeah. Well, there's that. But like Stephen King was like 2,000 words a day. You know, that was his mantra. And then, you know, you you two are doing it and you're sort of your way. But but functionally, you spend a lot less time sitting around talking about it and a lot more time actually doing it. Yeah, well, I don't know. We, our husbands would probably say we do spend a lot of time talking. In fact, we we laugh because we have to have our hour therapy session out of the way first. So we'll get all of our complaints out of the way, all the things that are annoying us, the things that, you know, we'll have all our dramas. We'll get that out of the way like you would with a friend. And then we're like, yeah, right, work. <laughs> so we basically like kind of pin therapy to one another as well over the last uh, very difficult year and a half that we've all been experiencing. But um, But yeah, we do. We work. We work. And we're quite strict with each other, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, like today is a is a national holiday in the Netherlands. So I it's with my children and my husband and a family friend. And, you know, I said to her, don't forget, we've got to uh, sign off on audio because um, obviously we have Kindle paperback audio. We're, we're ticking all the boxes. And I said, don't, she said, yes, boss, I haven't forgotten what I need to do today. So like, we give each other work to do. You can't be scared to do that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're not both pulling your, your own weight. So she walks the dog every day so she can go through the audio and make any notes for any amends that need to be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got to write the newsletter for Friday, you know, so we have our little yeah. jobs. Um, yeah. But there's always a lot to do when you when you take on. We knew we were going to self-publish from the from the onset, but there's just so much work that needs to be done because you're everything. Conscious, self-aware, upfront and open. Yes, we're creatives and yes, we're artists, but we're also pursuing a business path. Yeah. You know, I think people are like, oh, but it's it's art. Therefore, you know, I might get it's like they almost see it as like it's this magic thing that's happening and I might get stopped or I'll get this or that. And there's all this this almost self coddling that can go on. And it's like, you know what? Just sit down and get to work. This is business. I mean, yes, it is creative. Yes, we love it. Yes, we have so much fun. She actually was able to come and visit me last September for 10 days and um, stayed in my home with me, you know, was part of our family for 10 days. And we we worked solidly. We were up at eight in the morning and uh, working from eight in the morning and getting to bed at midnight. And um, and we also, you know, did all of our author photo shoots and videos and everything else we had to do while we were in the same room. Right. saying the kids kept saying you know you're not working you're laughing all the time that's not real work and I was like it was the best fun we'd ever had because we literally got to sit side by side and she got to know my routine so now she'll be like okay I'll call you in two hours when you finish lunch you know dinner <laughs> with the kids or whatever she knows exactly where I am at each each moment um, right but the kids but, that is isn't. I know right people have an impression of what work is supposed to feel like and look like and sound like and um, yeah, it's interesting. Even your kids who live with you and have watched you over the years still are picking up maybe a cultural messaging about what work is supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, and they, I mean, they they love her, and I and I and I love the fact that you know my girls get to see what work looks like. I mean, my husband works in a very corporate job, really great job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Forbes five hundred kind of companies at director level, so he's the other end of the spectrum whereas mm-hmm. I'm the mom that, that does book signings or she's in her pajamas for three days you know, at her <laughs> laptop it's very different and then the kids get to see that and they get to experience kind of both ends I guess so what so, happened this year with the pandemic in in the Netherlands did the schools continue or were the kids learning at home um it was a lot more relaxed than the states so they were off for I think it was for about eight weeks 
in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, you know, we all were in a March, April. They went back in, I think, in the May. Then uh, things loosened up a bit. And then I think they were off school again um, just two weeks before. I think it was actually they finished for Christmas and then they just didn't go back to school until February, if my memory serves me right. So mm-hmm. they've only had two lots of working from home. Uh, the first time was hell because obviously they didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know what they were doing. The teachers didn't know what right. they were doing. The second time round, my eldest had already started high school because they start at the age of 11, 12 here. Mm -hmm. Um, So she was a lot more capable. She had her own laptop. I'd already bought a new desk, you know, so I had all these workstations around the house Mm -hmm. and it was no issue. They weren't bothering me. Everyone was like, right, we're all logging on, all four of us at home. My husband's a key worker. He works in shipping. So, you know, he was allowed in the office. He had to go into the office, which made everybody's life easier that there were only three of us at home, not four. Right made it life easier for him as well I think um but at one point I think we would live in one of those really tall Dutch townhouses that's just got lots of stairs I think at one point we were at one person per, per floor you know so we weren't really annoying each other we we're all on different zoom calls right, we, we, right. We, we made it work we made it work it was fine oh the I, you know I think one of the coolest things about travel just you just reminded me of that is that literally every single minute of every day, pretty much wherever you are, there's eye candy. There's something interesting, new, and different. And I, I just, I, I, I wish for everyone who would wish it for themselves that travel is something they're able to do because it's such a utter, endless, all day long delight, you know. And um, so I'm glad that your your girls in particular as well are able to actually grow up and and be in different places. It's such so a super exciting. No, absolutely. And um, it was funny because I remember my mum saying to me when I'd met my husband in Australia and we were traveling and I did say to her I'd be gone for, you know, maybe a month to go and see a friend in Australia. And I didn't come home for 14 months for every year. And I remember saying to her, I just don't want to. I just love this life. I I, I just want to keep moving. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, that's not realistic. People get married, they have children, you buy a house, you stay put. That's not realistic. And I laugh now because I was, you know, I was talking to my other kind of immigrant, expat, whatever you want to call us, friends today. And and we laughed because I, you know, I said to my mum the other day, I was like, well, it may not have been realistic to you, but we haven't stopped moving since then. You know, we went to the UK, then we went to Spain, now we're in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. We're talking about other opportunities coming up. Like, why not? Well, <laughs> why not just keep moving? Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got a job you can do from home. And it sounds like, I mean, if your husband's involved in shipping, he's obviously not actually where the ships are. So he obviously can be pretty much anywhere and use the internet to deal, right? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, where yeah. there's a where there's a port, there's a way for us, really. So as long as there's there's a port and a hub, which there are hundreds of, he's fine. But uh, that's why I got that's how I got into writing. I, I used to have a very successful career as an international account director in uh, marketing, mm-hmm. and um, in in London. And I used to fly to Paris and Dubai and work for big brands, really big campaigns, mm-hmm. and I loved it. And uh, and then had my daughter and an opportunity came up for us to move to Spain and I remember thinking I don't want to lose my career I don't want to leave it and then I thought actually wait maybe I can bring my daughter up in the sun and um and you know give my husband a chance to build his career Mm. and then I realized by the time I had my second daughter oh wait a minute I'm it's it's a bit of a gap now and do I even want to go back to that life I, it doesn't there, it doesn't exist here in the south of Spain that life do I want to go back to London with two kids it's a different life mm-hmm. but once you're a mum and 
then I realized my dream has always been writing and this was my opportunity. So I made it work, basically. Yeah. I made it work around, around his amazing career and my children's lives and what, how I want, you know, the kind of mother I wanted to be. And now it's, it's just the perfect job. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm incredibly passionate about about being a mum, but it's uh, it just it just makes me laugh because it everything I do, you know, is is for them, and because um, of them that I got into writing. That's the irony right. of it. Yeah, they never they never let me sleep. I used to get three four hours broken ah. sleep a night for about four years to the point that I was like seriously hallucinating it was awful you could have been and, writing books about zombies because you had personal experience uh, yeah, I was like a zombie <laughs> and then I, I, I realized I had I could either kind of resent them and hate my life mm-hmm. or I could just use that time for something that was just mine that felt like it was utilizing it so mm-hmm. I mentioned it because it's about my, you know how you frame things in a yes. mindset and I started to use that you know four o'clock in the morning watching Teletubbies time to write my book and that's how the path keeper happened so if it's a bit disjointed, it's probably because I was sleep deprived writing it. <laughs> but it's uh, yeah, and then it you know, changed changed my life. So what was like a really tough part of my life became the beginning of a new career. Yeah, there was times for me when uh, I had taught ballroom dancing when I was younger, and then um, I broke a foot, which was a problem. Went back to college, and then ended up having the kids, and then. I was actually in a theater production with my boys because they'd gotten out of gymnastics. So I'm like, let's go do theater. And I pulled two hamstrings. And there I was. I couldn't ride a bike. I couldn't walk. I could barely go up and down the oh, stairs. No. Right? And at that moment, I'm a dancer, right? So think about it. About it. You know what? I'm, I'm a horseback rider, dancer. I mean, like, I'm used to being in my body. And I'm like, well, it was the same thing. I could sit there and be miserable. But instead, I was like, oh, that story has been in my head, bouncing around for like, you know, the past year. And I can't move. I'm just sitting around. Why don't I start writing my book? And that was why I started in 2010, started writing my first novel. It was how you make lemonade out of lemons. No, absolutely. And I'm a, I'm a huge, huge believer in that. And I know um, a lot of people have struggled quite rightly with the <laughs> difficult time we've all had. But uh, I remember I wrote an article about it, uh, about Jackie and I saying how we got ourselves through it because we could have easily said, oh, my God, COVID's happened. Let's just scrap our idea. This is all just extra pressure for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, we were like, okay, let's just pretend, you know, we're not in the middle of an apocalypse. Let's just delve into this huge fantasy world and put all our energy there instead. Um, and that's and that's what we did. We were like, okay, let's come out of this awful year with something solid that we can be proud of. And it, it helped us survive. It really, really did help us having that each other to just kind of talk to every single day and have something to focus on that wasn't the news. Right, right, absolutely. And I I don't know, I I gave up on the news many years ago because I was like, well, wait a minute. News is curated news. That word curated needs to go in front of it. And I'm like, well, okay, so we all know if I listen to Fox News or MSNBC or um, the BBC that it's a different curator. It could be news from North Korea, news from China, news from Afghanistan. It's going to be curated. And I'm like, okay, but there's a whole planet, a whole planet of billions of things, tens of billions. I mean, billions of things happening. And I'm getting the curated news of, you know, wait a minute. And so I gave up on on any curated news a while ago. I love the internet for that. I'm like, 
I get to explore the whole world. There's always great news out there to go check out and hear about, right? Yeah, and it, it, it's true because um, happy happiness doesn't um, sell. <laughs> Fear sells. Uh, salacious mm-hmm. gossip sells. Division sells. Um, you mm-hmm. tell everybody that everything's great, then politicians aren't going to get very far and neither is the media. So you have to keep telling everybody how awful everything is so that you can then manage their uh, their expectations and their views and what they do and the decisions they make. And um, and I think, you know, the way that I'm not going to get too political because that's not my specialist subject, but we all have our own opinions. But I really do think that social media has made a really positive contribution to the world because you actually, you know, get to see things from other perspectives. There's nothing better than hearing one thing on the news and then going online never on Twitter saying something different. You're like, oh, okay. So none of it's actually the truth. There's, there's lots of different truths. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I love that. I love that. Yeah. For all the, my husband has this thing where he always says no technology is good or bad. It's capable of causing good and bad things or being yeah. a part of that, yeah. but it's not in and of itself inherent. No, no, it's, it's it's used. It's a tool. I mean, you go back hundreds of years, they were like, oh, the printing press is going to cause havoc or like women <laughs> reading is going to cause havoc or women um, voting. Oh, my goodness. The world yeah, will end. Exactly. You know how how uh, computers are going to cause havoc. People are going to stop reading books if we have video games. And every time there's a change in, in anything, people get scared because they think you can only see, you know, how it's going to influence people. But ultimately, yeah. they're all just mediums of entertainment and knowledge. So if I, I can't let this pass by because I know I've, I've got, you know, writers out there um, listening and, and possibly readers who have their own projects that may be outside of the world of writing. So everyone out there might be thinking, okay, you know, you are an expert for lack of a better word in um, marketing and, and creating, you know, business storylines. And you had mentioned earlier that, you know, the creative diversification, you know, that you that basically let yourself sort of expand and be broad. So I'm really passionate about that. Yeah. 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 So, so if you wanted to speak to that, but then also maybe if there's a a couple of concrete thoughts that you would have for either a writer who wants to self publish or a writer who wants to develop their audience reach before they seek traditional publishing, maybe if you have a couple of thoughts around that as well. I think when it comes to traditional or self-published, because I've done and I'm doing both, I actually have a, a secret book that's out on sub that I can't talk about yet um, at all about what genre it is or whoever it is completely. I, I've just been silent about it for the last year and it's driving me mad. But there's a book out in sub with some really big publishers right now. Um, so I, I, you know, I've experienced traditional like high-end of the traditional uh, smaller publishers like BHC Press, who I'm with, and also Indie. And I would say that really there's a reason for doing all of them. People think, okay, every writer wants to be with the top five. If not, they'll have a small press. If not, they'll go Indie, like, you know, self-publishing is the kind of backup option, Mm -hmm. worst-case scenario. Your book is not going to do well if that's the approach that you're taking. Um, We specifically, Jackie and I, approached the series that we're writing very much like we knew from the beginning it was going to be indie not because we didn't think an agent or a publisher would pick it up it's because we write to market we did our research we know what sells well we knew we wanted it to be a quick release we knew we wanted to be writing you know two to four books a year Mm -hmm. we knew our audience and the business approach that we were going to take um 
And if you're going to self-publish a book and you want to be successful at it, and it's different if it's a, if it's a heart project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you've got a memoir about your grandmother and you just want it out there and you just want somebody to be able to buy it and you're happy to sell 30 copies because it's a book you have to write, mm-hmm. whatever you want, just do it. It doesn't matter. But if you want to be a successful author with some longevity in your career and you choose to go down the indie route, then research it. Find out what other people are doing. I know people that are making, you know, $10,000, $15,000 a month. Some of them are making, you know, a million a year from mm-hmm. self-published writing. Unfortunately, not us, not yet. <laughs> but um, they're doing it because they understand that the more books out there you have, the better you, you, you do, you know, building up your audience, your social media, your newsletters, your brand. But what I specialize in, what I actually teach creatives is how to create a brand how to uh, really understand who you are, who you're speaking to, and what it is that you're um, going to focus on and find that red thread in everything that you do. So yes, I do, I write manga, I write all sorts of different genres, but ultimately everything I write is about magic, everything's quite dark and fantasy, the illustrations I do are as well, what I teach is storytelling, uh, which is linked to my writing. So there's that commonality in everything that I do. And that's what I'm associated with. I don't suddenly then want to write about, you know, how to be a gardener or something, because it'd be like, whoa, what? Um, right. So really understand who you are, what it is that, uh, try and think of three words that sum you up, everything that you do, what you're passionate about, what your book's going to be about, who your audience is. Um, and then decide what works best for the genre that you're writing. You know, if you're writing crime, uh, investigative um, kind of police, uh, crime drama books do really well something very very niche mm-hmm. that you want to uh, write about I don't know lesbian space cowboys or something that's <laughs> really 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 niche that is going to do pretty well as indie but it's going to be a lot harder to uh, tap into the kind of trade mm-hmm. um, then investigate it see who your competitors are uh, be really really careful with your covers uh, we design our own covers but we have a background in design and marketing so we knew what we were doing but, mm-hmm. but if you're not confident then please um pay a professional and do oh, your research you yeah know, yeah when it comes to covers in particular it's interesting you every once in a while they'll you know you'll see um a self-published book um, series, whatever that comes out. And you're like, I'm just gobsmacked. I'm like, that is the most beautiful cover. And then there's unfortunately sort of a trend where I think people just save their money or under invest in their cover. And as soon as I see the cover, I just sort of get this, I don't yeah, know. Well, it reflects, it's your shop window. I'm not, they say don't book, don't, you know, judge a book by its cover. Um, you're going to, of course you are. You, you're going to judge a shop by its shop window. If it's full of broken stuff and dusty and dirty, you're not going to walk in, even if it's the best shop in the world. The mm-hmm. same with a restaurant. If it, if it looks awful from the outside, you're not going to say the food might be good. Well, who cares? You walk past it. Um, so, you know, we, we knew our, our covers were, were worthy because actually the Russian publishers decided to buy our cover design and use ours and uh, not create their own. So that was like a massive pat on the back for Jackie, who, who did them all. I'll credit on that. Uh, but, um, what's so, the yeah, name that, of the publisher in, in Russia? AST publishers they're, they're really big you know they they publish you know the schwab and all the awesome fantasy writers that we love so oh, we, it's just you know over here we just so that. often in america you just don't hear anything outside of america it's it's just yeah, really so 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 <laughs> weird one giant echo on, chamber ah <laughs> i see that on twitter where they're like oh wow nj you're from new jersey it's like no <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, there are there are other countries out there, but um, yeah. So so covers understand who your audience is, your brand, and be really committed. Take it seriously. And if you're going to be a uh, self-published writer, then you need, you're going to have to churn them out. You can't go as slow as traditional publishing. I've noticed um, that. Yes, everyone. There are some. I did a bunch of research. Of course, I've had ten years to do it. Um, Eleven years now, and it, there's this one woman. She's amazing. She's in Canada. She's so successful. And I love her work. And I, I sought her out and I said, hey, you know, do you think you can, you know, do you want to come on the show? And she was like, I am just too busy. And sure enough, because I get her newsletters, you know, it's like all these books are coming out and all this and all that. And, and I was like, oh, so I'm going to hit her up again. Eventually, I'll get her on the show because I want everyone to know about her books. But yeah, a lot of times the advice even that's given when you're watching YouTube videos and stuff put out by people who focus 100% on self-publishing is there like you know three to four books a year sort of as a minimum and yeah. um and yeah. there's all we that conversation that. we wanted to do more than that I mean I know people that write a book every four to six weeks but we realized that we wouldn't be able to go as deep or mm -hmm. have the quality that we wanted if we were if we were writing that fast I'm not yeah. saying other people can't we couldn't we yeah. killed ourselves with 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 which is a vast claim because we did it in three months and it was honest to god we were like crying it was it was hell <sighs> so we realized actually we're very proud of it our readers say it's you know one of the best of the series but it, it was too ambitious mm -hmm. and we realized if we've got international publishers traditional international publishers interested then we would have to not rush it uh so right. that so we, we're kind of straddling the, the, the two we're you know we're a little bit hybrid in that respect mm -hmm. um and also because we're also doing audio and we're also doing paperback and uh, we're also going to do lessons. So we're not just kind of churning out these cheap ebooks, uh, but that is a really great way to make money. But it mm. depends whether you want longevity and you want to be able to kind of get the kudos and respect within the whole industry or whether you just really want to make a lot of money in a name for yourself in one genre indie. I mean, that's also fine. I mean, if, uh, if you want to write books that hundreds thousands tens of thousands whatever all these people are going to want to read it's just like if you want to have a restaurant that everyone wants to come to you know you you got to put in the time the love the devotion yeah. do the research you know and and that's that's you know you can you put yeah, yeah. but the difference is with in with self-publishing what you put in you get out with traditional like trade press unfortunately you don't always get out what you put in because you don't have as much control so you can bust a gut doing as much PR as you want. But if your publisher doesn't have uh, the doesn't have the power to get you into Barnes and Noble or in the window, or if they decide to put a lot of money behind you, you might do nothing, just happen to write a book that, that hits the right spot and you get the big advance and you get the marketing budget and you get the shop windows and you're a bestseller. Mm -hmm. And they've decided you're gonna be their bestseller for the year. Right. Uh, whereas with indie, if you fail, it's your fault. <laughs> 100% your fault. If we haven't, if we're not selling a book, if we haven't sold a book that day, we, we need to up our game. Right. Just in case you're not clear. Yeah, you're blowing it. But guess what? Yeah. There are ways you can fix it. That's the other yeah, thing about yeah. indie is you maintain that ownership and control. You can re-release, yeah. you can change your cover, you know, you can do Absolutely. these things if you want. Exactly. Yeah. And you can't with trade and you're waiting. Right. You know, if we'd, if we'd have written Vampires of Bosco, which we released last October, which was only what, seven, eight months ago, mm -hmm. if we'd have fit, finished it then, we got to release it straight away. If we'd have finished it then, them trying to get our agent to then sub it, to then get editors, to then go through the editing process, to then be put in line for yeah. 12 yeah. to 18 months, that book wouldn't even have been out yet. 
and we've already you know we're, we're going to release uh, three this year so uh, three more so there'll be five three books and two novellas so mm -hmm. the speed in which you can do it because you have the control um but of course you also need the knowledge and right. the two of us and um, you're putting in the work to make all that happen instead of sitting and you're back putting in the money yeah in the money yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Invest up front. Well, I mean, and we're, we live in this and then we're going to run out of time, which is horrible. Know, but we live in this really interesting world right now. I, it was, this was interesting. So I, I have typically when it comes to Netflix, I typically stumble upon something that already has a season or two or five. And I go, oh, that's cool. And then like a lot of other people, I binge it over the next week and a half. And my friend recently, there's this show called The Nevers. When they rolled it out, they rolled it out as a once a week. And what I found was that with the bingey shows, I binge and I think to myself, oh, it'd be torture if I couldn't watch the next one because they have such a good hook at the end of each one. But with The Nevers, it was a reminder of when I was a child. And Star yeah. Trek came out once a week on Wednesday at 7 p.m. And at the end of it, you had to wait a week. And I Well, found... I had to say that to my children because they watch my, my 12-year-old's watching Friends for the third time. And I mean, oh. the entire thing for oh. the third time. All she does is just sit there and watch it while she's <laughs> doing everything, really. My husband was like, you don't even understand how hard it was for us because, you know, we weren't even sure if they were going to kiss. We had to wait till the following week. Right, right, <laughs> right. Like, you know, we'd go to school and it'd be the end of the series and we'd be like, what? We have to wait, you know, eight months for the next series to come right. out and you get to just watch them back to back. They, they've got no idea how yeah. lucky they are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And But it when when we saw the first Nevers, my friend was like, check this out. And I watched it with her. And then I was like, oh, I can't watch the next one. And within within a heartbeat, I was relaxed. I was like happy to have an entire week to enjoy looking forward to the next True, one. yeah. Otherwise you stay up till three in the morning. I'm oh, or five in the morning when the rooster's crowing and then you're sneaking into bed hoping that your husband doesn't notice you've been up all night. Ah! Uh -huh. well, the thing, yeah, that, and that's why, that's why you, you will never write as fast as your readers will read. Right. So, you know, I said to Jackie, we could be churning out, you know, a book a month and it mm -hmm. still wouldn't be fast enough because our books are just fun, easy page turners. They're read in a day or two. Mm -hmm. So they can wait. We feel guilty. We're making them wait three or four months. Whereas in trade, you're waiting a year, sometimes two years for the right. next book. They can wait because it's better that they wait and it's as good as we can make it than we're just trying to satisfy these <laughs> hungry readers. There's this pro and con to the waiting thing. It can be a joy. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, good things come to those who wait. And I had to tell myself that because the book I'm writing at the moment, set in 1666, I came up with the idea because I speak, I speak to an agent about it in March 2018, I want to say, actually. Mm -hmm. Finished it at the end of 2019, maybe. It took me a year and a half to write this book into things that's huge in the school, historical stuff. Mm -hmm. Then I then I subbed it. Then I got a whole load of like full requests for certain agents I got very close with one then I realized it wasn't right I've scrapped the entire book and I've changed it from YA fantasy to adult speculative with a more mythological edge right and I'm rewriting it all again and it is absolutely killing me but you know this is the book that I'll, I'll probably be the most proud of so mm. what's the rush and after 10 years I know for a fact that the novel that I'm going to end up you know subbing and getting out there my first book when it does get out there it's going to be so much deeper, broader, and and better mm -hmm. than if I had managed to get it published, let's say, in the first three years or something, I just wouldn't have had so much time for the ideas to, you know, to percolate in my head. And then I would grab a scrap yeah. of paper and write it down and, you know, and so, you know, pros and cons. Yes. Yeah. 
you have to be patient as a writer to say, you know what, I've got an amazing idea, but it's it's not going to come out as good as I can hear, you know, see it in my head until I've got some experience behind me, until I let it just stew a little bit longer. Yeah. Exactly. Keep writing, read those craft books. Yeah, exactly. Keep learning. Yeah, this is my 10th book I'm writing and I'm still like, hey, how do you write? <laughs> how do you write a book? I don't know. Every time I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. My husband's like, you've got a whole bookshelf full of them. I'm like, yeah, but you know. We're actually announcing the cover to the third book on our newsletter on Friday. So if you go to Cadis, C-A-E-D-I-S, Cadis, night with a K, dot com, you can uh, sign up to our newsletter and see what our next book's going to be. And we're also writing a very cheeky, funny tea <laughs> Christmas special. We call it, yeah, the fantasy. Bit of bit of fantasy doesn't do anyone any harm oh, <laughs> in the snow. Oh, are you? It sounds so punny. <laughs> it, it's it's nothing but puns. Uh, we, we're just <laughs> we're having a lot of fun with it. But hey, you know, we don't always have to be serious with our writing. People just want to have fun. That's right. That's right. So that's Cadis is C A E D I S. Night with a K dot com dot com. And that's where pretty much anyone can find you and yeah, figure out what you guys are doing been. out there. Natalie, thank you so much for calling in or <laughs> zooming in. Zo- you zoomed in from the Netherlands. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you. I could talk all day.